Welcome to the Wise Birth Radio. We are women, students, and mamas exploring healthy pregnancies, empowered birth, nurtured postpartum, and natural parenting from a holistic, intuitive, and grounded experience. We share knowledge through interviews, stories, and musings. We hope to inspire you to take charge of your childbearing journey for yourself and your family. This show is intended to spark your own curiosity and encourage you to listen to your body, your baby, and your intuition. I'm Mabel. And I'm Sarah. And we are your hosts on Wise Birth Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Wise Birth Radio. I am your host, Mabel Coughlin. And it's just me and you today, and Olin here in the stroller. I suppose it's recently just been me and you, you as in you all who are listening, for a while. But I do hope to get some guests on the podcast. Honestly, I feel like... Even after being a mother for a year and a half, I still haven't figured out how to schedule anything in my life. Um, If anyone has any tips on that, let me know. But it's much simpler for me to record episodes by myself. So that's what we're doing for now. Um, And I would like to do some more interviews one day. I got a little distracted because I just saw these beautiful orange mushrooms on the side of the road. Anyways, back to today. It is a beautiful day. I was not planning on recording an episode today, but Olin climbed into the stroller and wouldn't get out, and I was feeling chatty, so it seemed like a good time to do one. Um, So I don't have anything planned, although, that being said, I was thinking about talking about placentas today, and no, I don't have notes, but I did just make a 30-page PDF placenta guide and I have not as this moment as of this moment as of this moment is that what you say anyways in this moment I have not yet figured out how it's going to be released how it'll be available to you Um, but I made it and when I started it I was thinking oh it'll be like you know five six pages talking about the placenta what you can do with it sort of the spiritual meanings and it turned into 30 pages You know, it's not like 30 pages of a book where it's all eight-point font and taking up the whole space. There's a lot of pictures, and it's sort of meant to be read on a phone, so it's bigger font. But still, it was quite an undertaking. I'm pretty proud of myself. I hope that you will be able to read it soon. Um, And in the meantime, why not make a podcast about something that I already have all the information gathered on? So placentas. I love placentas. I feel like announcing this episode like a, I'm imagining like a man announcing the circus, like come see the wonderful, the marvelous, the one and only. Not because a placenta is a circus freak, but just because it's so incredible and so overlooked, misunderstood, um, undervalued? That's not quite the word I'm looking for, but I think you know what I mean. I feel like uh, the champion of the placenta. Maybe that should be my new title because I don't really know what else to call myself. Student midwife feels like not really acknowledging everything that I have to offer and also not totally true because I'm not really actively at this moment pursuing a future in midwifery, although I do feel like everything that I'm doing now is going to be helpful to that. Um, I don't really like childbirth educator. To me, that feels like an old lady who's a retired nurse and works in a hospital. 
teaching the courses where they're like, and this is what an epidural is. And then there's the third stage of labor where you push and we will say, one, two, three, push. And then you hold your breath. I know that's a little outdated, but that's what comes to my head when I think of childbirth educator. Um, I'm not a doula. I'm not a postpartum care provider at this moment because I don't feel like that's exactly what I have the time and energy for, although I would love to. So I don't really have a title that fits, but maybe this is my new one, Champion of the Placenta. Change my Instagram bio to Mabel Coughlin and Sarah Philkill, Champions of the Placenta. And everyone will be like, I have no idea what they do, but that's a really cool title. Um, I've also read recently, again, The Mists of Avalon, which is the first adult fiction book that I've read in a very, very long time. I think I'm a little afraid of adult fiction because I don't want to end up reading a book that's just sort of a boring personal drama. <laughs> um, so if you have any suggestions of books for me, that would be great. Um, I loved rereading Mists of Avalon, and in it, Lancelot is the Queen's champion. So you know, I'm the placenta's champion. You can knight me now. Anyways, placentas. Actually, before we get into placentas, I was just thinking about how, I don't know if you can tell, probably not, because you all don't know me that well, but for me, I can tell as I'm recording this episode that I am approaching ovulation. I feel um, verbose and chatty and open and not shy or... I mean, I often am at loss for words just because I can't think of the words that I'm trying to think of. But I don't feel hesitant about expressing myself. I feel excited about connecting and about sharing and about using my words. Um, and I am indeed near ovulation. So fun facts about me, although I'm sure well, there's a chance, but by the time you're listening to this, who knows where in my cycle I will be. It's always funny for me because I record these episodes and I usually have intros that are sort of relevant to what's going on currently in my life, but I don't actually know when I'm going to create the time to edit these episodes. So who knows how long after I record this, it will be out there in the world for you to listen to. But as of this moment, August 8th, Lion's Gate. Maybe that's another part of what's going on today, this energy that I'm feeling. Um, I am near my ovulation time, in case you were curious. Um, maybe I should try to batch record podcasts, do like four or five episodes in this week or so around ovulation. That's an interesting idea. All right, so Lion's Gate, ovulating. Mm, that book that I'm reading called Mist of Avalon. On to placentas. So, first things first, I suppose. What is the placenta? So, the placenta begins to form after implantation. Um, it's centered on the site of implantation, which is pretty cool. So, if you can tell where your placenta is, whether you can hear that with a fetoscope, because you can sort of hear the pulse of the placenta. It's kind of whooshy. It's like a whooshier version of your own pulse, if that makes sense. Um, so if you can hear that or you see it on an ultrasound, you know where your placenta is, you know that's where your little teeny tiny first cells of a fetus, before it was even a fetus, implanted in your uterus, which I think is pretty fun. 
<laughs> so your placenta grows out from there. It starts as initially just being one cell thick. So this teeny, teeny, tiny little thing and grows and grows and grows until by the time of birth, it is around, I wanna say nine inches maybe in diameter, maybe it's six. But about the size of a dinner plate is the general um, analogy and about an inch thick. So when the placenta is born on the side that it was attached to your uterus, it's kind of meaty and chunky. You can see these different little You can see the different lobes they're called in the placenta, different sort of segments. Um, and on the fetal side, the side that was closer to your infant, to your new, to your fetus, <laughs> to your fetus, it's smoother. You can see the veins and the arteries more, which form kind of the tree of life pattern with the umbilical cord coming out of somewhere, I was gonna say the middle, but it's not always the middle, as sort of the trunk of this tree of life. And then there's the sac, the amniotic sac, which has the two layers around the placenta and the baby, obviously. But I'm talking about once the baby is born, in which case the baby would no longer be in the sac. So anyways, the placenta is what facilitates the sharing of nutrients um, and the exchange of waste products from the fetus to the mom. And there's this very, very cool technology about it where the you, the mother, and your baby can share um, minerals and oxygen and fluids and then your mother's bloodstream can remove waste products from the baby's system. And the placenta facilitates this all without any exchange of blood, which is so cool. Basically, if I can remember this correctly from our class, um, and the Indie Birth Midwifery School on placentas. There's sort of um, a pool of blood in between the, let's see, how does this go? I imagine it is like an underground lake around the edge of the womb where the placenta is. And the veins and arteries of the mother and the veins of the arteries of the placenta can kind of dip into this lake and these different single cells of nutrients can be exchanged through this process, but without any actual blood transferring back and forth, which is so stinking cool. This is why the placenta is amazing. This is one of the reasons why. So that is what a placenta does. Um, in many cultures that have an understanding of this organ, that's the other thing, it's an organ. It is an organ that you create completely from scratch when your baby is born, which I think is so fascinating. Like, I've never thought about growing an organ before. You know, all of my organs are preformed, more or less. I came with all the organs I need, and then all of a sudden you get pregnant, and you grow not only a baby, but an extra organ. So cool. How many times am I going to say so cool in this episode? Maybe you make it a drinking game. We'll find out. <laughs> all right, so... The placenta in many traditions is seen as sort of a protector um, or you could say a guardian angel of the baby 
Um, and this doesn't just stop after the baby is born. So I don't, I'm not going to remember all of the words for it, but I want to say it's in some community in Laos, perhaps? I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but it's considered the baby or the human's jacket, like the sole of this person's jacket, and so when the baby is born, it takes off the jacket and you have to perform special rituals and take care of it in a certain way so that when a person dies, its soul can go back and collect its jacket. And if it can't, if the placenta is lost or not um, taken care of properly, then the soul can't put its jacket back on and go meet its ancestors or whatever happens to a spirit in the afterlife. Um, in other traditions, if someone with bad intentions were to find the placenta, or even the umbilical cord, um, they could use that to harm the child or the adult or whoever it is that this placenta matches with. Because the placenta and the baby are genetically identical. Which again, so cool! <laughs> I have just cr cracked myself up sometimes. Um, so in many, as I said, in many cultures there are specific rituals for often burying placentas. I know the Mamos and the Sierras in South America um, say that you should bury the placenta in a clay pot and there's obviously specific ceremonies surrounding that. Um, and the idea around most of these is that in burying the placenta in a specific place with these certain rituals it grounds this human coming in into the culture, into the community, and into the land that it was born in. So it's a tie for this human to this physical land and to this community that the baby was born to. Um, so that it helps the human be oriented, be grounded, as I said, and be connected to its roots, which I think is really beautiful. And there's some, you know, there's some traditions, I can't remember where, um, you should read the book if you're curious about this. It goes into a lot of placenta cultural history and sort of anthropology. Um, it's called Placenta, the Forgotten Chakra by Robin Lim. That's a really good one. And I use that um, as a main resource in my little guide. Where was I going with this? Oh, um, there's one culture... And I'm sure more than this is sort of a general idea, but where you bury the placenta is thought to influence. Yeah, this is sort of a worldwide idea, but where you bury the placenta is thought to influence this child, this human's sort of path in life. Like they say, if you want the child to be very religious and spiritual and learned in that way, then you should plant it like in the courtyard of a church or a mosque or a synagogue or whatever. And if you want your child to be a really good horse person, you plant it in a stable. And if you want your child to be really well educated, then you should plant it like in a schoolyard or something. That's the general idea of it. Um, and other cultures say like if you, you should plant a fruit tree above the placenta so that the child is never hungry or plant a flowering tree above it so that the child is always surrounded by beauty. 
And the cool thing about this, I think, is that there isn't a separation of like, oh, this is the baby's placenta and then you grow up and it's just kind of a random organ. This placenta is sort of intertwined with a human's destiny growing up. And like I said, if someone with bad intentions were to find your placenta, were to get a hold of it somehow, or maybe if you don't bury your placenta deep enough and wild animals eat it, that could negatively impact your future or your, you know, your health, your well-being, your future path, whatever it is. So it's definitely something that many, many traditions around the world think is really important to safeguard in their various ways that they do so. So in this book, uh, The Placenta, The Forgotten Chakra, Robin Lim, I don't know if this comes from a specific tradition or culture, but she says that when the Earth Mother gave birth to sort of everything that is to this Earth, to this planet, the amniotic fluids became the ocean and the placenta became the tree of life. I think that's a really beautiful image around placentas. So... Now we've gone over kind of what a placenta is, what its function is, some of the spiritual um, significances that have been ascribed ascribed to it. Is that the word I'm looking for? So the next question, I suppose, would be what, I mean, what does the birth process look like? I know we learn a lot. Well, some of us learn a lot about birth, and we take a birth education course, and we learn that the baby's moving this way through the pelvis, and that these different stages of labor might feel these different ways, and here's some different things that you can do for these certain parts of labor, but the placenta, birthing your placenta, is so often not talked about. And I just did an episode Um, of the birth story of someone, and she had this amazing, amazing birth story. Um, I haven't published it yet, but when I finish editing it, you will be able to hear it. Um, And then, sort of similar to my story, when it came to the placenta birth, it was kind of awkward and really taken out of the energy of the birth to become something that was just like, oh, I don't really, I don't know what's happening, I don't feel fully in this process, in my body just a little f- and I know this is not a unique experience um, one thing that I recently heard Marin Green of Indie Birth talk about on I think one of her podcasts on postpartum hemorrhage possibly is that with all of her clients she talks through and I think she said she even makes them act out because it's something that we don't have a big understanding of and so she's like, you can be in these positions, this is what felt good to me, this is what feels good to a lot of women, and it might feel like this, you might feel these sensations, you might move in these ways. And I don't think that that's quite as necessary for birth, because we have this sort of overarching understanding of the process. But the placenta for many people just is so foreign, and is really an afterthought. It's like, well, the baby's here, that was the big event, now we'll just let the rest of it, whatever, I don't really care. I have the baby, just do whatever you need to do with the placenta. And I think that the placenta is really important and that birthing your placenta with the same power and presence and intention 
as you birth your baby can be a really powerful closure of the birth process because really birth isn't over until the placenta is born. So birth your own placenta. You can do it. People talk about catching their own babies. Um, and for me, that was really the only way I'd ever thought about doing it. I didn't want anyone else to touch my baby before I did. Um, and in the same way, you can birth and catch your own placenta. It's really much simpler than birthing a baby because it's okay if a placenta goes plop on the ground. <laughs> um, so usually around 15 minutes, half an hour after the birth of the baby, although sometimes this can be longer, especially if the environment isn't really harmonious for this process, um, because the same hormones that are needed to facilitate birth are needed to facilitate the birth of placenta as well. And so thus, the same environment that's necessary for an undisturbed birth is necessary for an undisturbed placenta birth. And so often after the birth of the baby, there's all this hubbub, there's pictures and there's crying and there's talking and there's maybe calling people on the phone and there's midwives who want to check things or listen to the baby's heart or touch you or people want to put you in different, whatever. There's, there can be a lot going on, which can all interrupt the hormonal flow for the mother of this oxytocin of feeling in this safe, dark, protected environment so that her uterus can honestly, can just continue the work that it needs to do to contract and to release the placenta. Um, so that's what happened with the birth of my placenta. I was feeling a little mm, just like out of my body after the birth. And I feel like a lot of that was because I didn't have this specific quiet space. There was all of a sudden a lot going on and I was in a really, really sensitive space and it kind of just knocked me out of my, my zone. And then I started to feel kind of pressure from the midwife of like, oh, it's been a while, it's been 45 minutes, it's been 55 minutes, where's the placenta? And I could tell that, <clears throat> that she was starting to feel a little stressed about it, which stressed me out a little bit, which made my body kind of tighten up and not be as, as available to open and to release, which is the same energies you need to, to birth anything. You need to be able to be open and to release and to feel safe to contract. Um, so that's all to say that it took my placenta quite a while to be born and it felt really awkward and kind of forced at the end. Um, and next time I'm really excited to, before the labor, set down really strong boundaries of what's going to happen after the baby's born and who's going to be there and what I expect of them in order to, to really protect the space, partly to help facilitate the birth of the placenta in a sacred and smooth way. So, 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever your timing is, women will start to feel contractions again um, because the placenta is still attached to the inside of the uterine wall most of the time and these contractions slowly detach it. So it comes off of the... I'm doing all these motions with my hand, but you can't see me. So the placenta detaches from the uterine wall and oftentimes women can feel it, especially if it's not their first baby. They have an idea of what this feels like. You can feel your placenta just kind of hanging out there whether it's like up in your uterus still, or you can feel it in your vagina just waiting to be guided out. So you can feel it detached, you might feel a heaviness, you can notice that the cord might lengthen as the placenta comes down. That makes sense, right? Which means that your placenta is ready to be birthed. So a lot of women who are undisturbed and in tune with their bodies might get into like a runner's pose, with so sort of one knee up and one knee down, 
like imagine you're squatting and then you put one knee on the floor, if that makes sense. And you can guide your placenta out by the cord. Um, so a lot of videos, well, there aren't many videos of this, but the few videos that I've seen of women birthing their own placentas like this, there's often people in the comments being like, well, you're not supposed to pull on the cord. It's called cord traction. And yes, ideally, you don't want someone else to be yanking on your placenta. That makes sense, right? They can't feel if it's detached. That could cause more harm. And it's, again, it's more hands. It's more intervention. It's someone else up in your space. But when it's you yourself just using your hands to guide, to pull the cord, not even to pull it, to use the cord to guide the placenta out because there is this curve of your pelvis that the placenta needs to be guided around. That is a very, very different thing. Um, and in this placenta guide that I have created that I will put a link to, there I have a couple of videos of women birthing their own placentas in this way. So, what's next? The placenta is born, the baby is born. What are your options from here? Well, you could cut the cord. This is what happens most often in hospitals. What's considered... All right, let's go back a second. Often in hospitals and modern-day practices, the cord is cut before the placenta is born. So there's a couple issues with this. First of all, again, unnecessary intervention activity, hands up in your space in the moments following birth. Second of all, at any given time, up to a third of the baby's blood can be held in the placenta. So this means that if you clamp the cord immediately, or even a couple minutes after, which is considered delayed cord clamping in hospitals. You couldn't see my sarcastic air quotes, but you could probably hear them. Your baby could only end up with two-thirds... Is that how it works? Yeah, with two-thirds of its blood. And so then it's no wonder that so many babies are being diagnosed as anemic or having a hard time transitioning if they have lost a third of their blood because it's still in the placenta when the cord is cut and clamped. I mean, that just seems totally ludicrous to me. Why wouldn't you wait until your baby has all of its blood? <laughs> seems super silly. The other part of that is that if one third of the baby's blood is in the placenta, that leaves a much juicier placenta to be born. It can be a little, or it can take longer, it'd be a little trickier for it to detach, and then it's just a bigger thing that you have to birth if it's full of all that blood. <sighs> And the other part about it is it's not just, it's, it's not honoring this sacred connection. This placenta is the only source of nourishment that the baby has known up until this point. It doesn't, it doesn't understand yet that it will be nourished with milk. Its only connection to life is through this cord to the placenta. And I think that that really is deserving of honoring so what can you do? You can wait until the cord is white and limp and not pulsing anymore. Because if it's pulsing, you can tell there's still blood being passed back and forth. And babies and placentas do this really cool dance in the, I don't know, hour or so after birth and in labor, but then also after birth where they can pass blood back and forth to kind of even out and see what the baby needs until all the blood is transferred to the baby. So when the cord is white and limp and not pulsing, that is when all the blood has passed and it can be ready to cut the cord. So I would suggest when you feel that this moment has come, just taking a second to thank the placenta, to tell the baby what's about to happen, to ask, not necessarily out loud, but 
just to feel out the energy of the baby and of the space like is this the right time to sever this connection and really honor that another thing that you could do instead of cutting the cord which is what we did with my son Olin you can burn the cord um this is a little slower and a little smellier <laughs> um but in my experience it was a really beautiful ceremony and for me just the idea of sharp metal scissors severing this sacred connection felt a little abrupt and a little artificial to me and the idea of instead doing it with fire felt like a much more natural welcoming of my child into this world like yes you are separated from this amazing life-giving placenta and with the separation we're introducing you to the elements of this plane so that felt really special to me. Um, it's sort of a fire ceremony. You could play music for it, you could sing songs, you could talk to the baby, or you could just be quiet and soak in the energy of this. So what we did, my partner made this really beautiful cedar cord burning box, which is not necessary. You could use like a plate or a whatever you have around to catch the wax from the candles. But I loved having this special box, and I think that we will use it again for our next baby, maybe with a different color candle, which I think that would be really cute. But anyways, we had this box. We had two long beeswax tapers, and we set it up, I don't know, maybe a little less than a foot away from the baby who was on my chest and had blankets around his belly. Let's do this again. I was holding him, but he was facing away from me. So that his belly was towards the cord burning box. And I also sort of wrapped him in blankets so that he wouldn't get too hot. And throughout this process, I was checking to make sure that the candle flames weren't getting him too hot. Um, so we held two candles, my partner and I. We each held a candle up to one spot on the cord where it was over the box. And we held it there. It probably took like 10 minutes maybe to separate. It was a little smoky. It was a little barbecue smelly. But... I mean, I didn't notice at that point. I was so somewhere else. And at one point, my mom came in and took over my candles so I could use both of my hands to hold Olin. And it was a really beautiful separation, and both a separation and a welcoming. Saying that, like, with this ceremony, with the severing of this connection, you are welcomed to this world. Um, and at some point towards the end, we could start kind of twisting the cord from the placenta side to encourage it to release faster. Uh, one question that I've seen people have is after you do this, you have just like a really long cord stump, right? Because when you cut and clamp the cord, you can cut it short and put a little clamp on it. So first of all, when you burn it, the end is naturally cauterized. It's not going to continue to bleed. It's perfectly sterile. You don't need to clamp it or tie it or anything. But what you can do is take this extra piece of umbilical cord that's coming out from the baby and just tie it into like a loose one little, I don't know what kind of knot that is, but you know, just a one little loopy knot to make it a little less awkward. And in the next couple of days, it will dry up and harden. And I've heard anecdotally that often cords that are burned fall off sooner than cords that are clamped. So... The other thing that you can do is you can do you can have a lotus birth. And so I know I've heard different definitions. Some people say that a lotus birth is just waiting until the placenta is born to cut the cord, which I think is a little silly. My definition of this is that a lotus birth 
is waiting until the cord just separates naturally. You never cut it, you never burn it, you don't, you just leave the placenta attached to the baby until it is released by itself. So, yes, this is a little bit cumbersome. You are carrying around a newborn and a placenta for a couple of days, a week, however long it takes. The placenta is usually put in a bowl or a box or a bag. I saw someone say they put it in like a, a little bamboo steamer, which seemed really cute because it had a lid. Um, and often it's salted and you put aromatic herbs, rosemary, lavender, turmeric on it to both to keep it clean, um, to keep it from getting all funny and to keep it nice smelling. And you have to reapply those, I want to say every day, I don't know exactly. Um, yeah, and then your baby is just attached to its placenta until the cord breaks on its own. I think that for people who choose to do this, I actually have a quote here somewhere. Let's see. Here's a quote from Sarah Buckley in a little article that she has in the book, The Placenta, the Forgotten Chakra. Lotus birth has been for us an exquisite ritual, which has enhanced the magic of the early postnatal days. I notice an integrity and self-possession with my lotus-born children, and I believe that lovingness, cohesion, attunement to nature, trust, and respect for the natural order have all been imprinted on our family by the honoring of the placenta, the tree of life, through lotus birth. And in that book, Robin Lim writes, I like to compare lotus birth to the slow process of growing a bonsai tree. It is all about patience, though a bonsai tree takes years to craft and a lotus birth only takes days. Yet the ritual patience is the same. It requires the mother, baby, and placenta to practice laying in after childbirth in a trinity and spiritual bubble of transition. This allows mother, baby, and placenta the time and space to let go gracefully, and only when they are truly ready. So I think in that there's sort of this implied... um, What am I trying to say? There is both the spiritual aspect of this, of allowing the baby and the placenta to release on their own time without forcing anything, without rushing anything, without doing anything to them. And there's also the sort of more practical nature of this in that this might allow you to stay in bed. This might give you an excuse to move around less because you need someone to carry the baby. And so this might give you an excuse or a reason Maybe not to invite your grandparents or your in-laws or whoever it is that wants to visit, but like, are they ready to see a placenta too? Um, yeah, it, it also makes it harder for people to come in and just like scoop up the newborn and be like, oh, I'm going to snuggle this cute little baby because they have to think twice about this. Like, okay, I'm going to offer to hold the baby. Am I also... And obviously it's totally up to you who comes to hold your baby, but... It can be just sort of an extra buffer, like the cumbersome nature of this lotus birth, maybe slightly unusual nature, might make it so that you have more easily accessible bonding time without people interrupting. Um, so I am maybe curious to do this with my next birth. I'm not sure. I'm Yeah, I guess I'm definitely curious, but I don't feel fully committed to it. All right, so... Whatever you decide to do to detach your placenta from the baby or to not do, what can you do with your placenta afterwards? So a lot of people talk about encapsulating placentas these days, which I think is really cool. 
Um, when you encapsulate a placenta, you can either do it raw, so you just take it and dehydrate it and powder it and then put it into capsules. Or you can do uh, sort of the traditional Chinese medicine way, which is you steam it often with like lemon or ginger or sort of warming spices. You steam it and then dehydrate it and then powder it and then encapsulate it. Um, and when I say you would, I'm not suggesting that a three-day postpartum woman take on this project. I think that if this is something you're interested in, you should find a doula or someone who offers the service and organize it with them in advance because you really don't need projects at this time. Um, so why do you encapsulate it? I don't think or I don't know if there's any official science on this, but I know that the placenta is obviously full of a lot of minerals, iron, hormones, because it is, again, the, the site of hormone production for this pregnancy, for this baby. Um, and so that by ingesting it, you are receiving the benefits of those things. I've heard of women who, I mean, I haven't heard, I've heard many times that when women ingest their placenta, they either feel like a burst of energy, or some explain it as kind of like a high, like a buzzing, a warmth. Um, and some people have said that, like in maybe in a first birth, they didn't do it, and they felt some sort of postpartum depression or like more extreme baby blues. And in, in subsequent birth, they did ingest their placenta, and that didn't happen. Or even that they started to feel themselves descend into that, even on a day-by-day -day basis. But then ingesting their placenta kind of kept that at bay. So this is all anecdotal for whatever that's worth to you. But encapsulating is not the only way to ingest your placenta. You can just eat it. I made really lovely smoothies for my friend. We had obviously not cold smoothies because you don't want to be doing cold foods in your postpartum time. But I warmed up some milk and did uh, like warm milk, strawberry and frozen placenta smoothie. And I'm sure it had a little bit of a funny tang, but she said it was delicious. And you couldn't really, you know, it wasn't obvious that it was a placenta smoothie. I've seen recipes for pate, for like a placenta stroganoff, or a stir fry. You can cook it. You could blend it up raw in smoothies. You can, yeah, you can do whatever you'd like with it. It might not be the most delicious, but maybe it, you'll be really into it. Um, another thing you can do that I think is really cool um, is you can tincture your placenta, or again, someone else can tincture your placenta for you. So if someone's already encapsulating your placenta, it's easy for them to just take a little extra piece and put it in some high-proof alcohol to tincture it. This then will last for a much longer time than the capsules will. Um, I've seen people say that you can use it even like you make this placenta tincture with the birth of your children and then that it can be helpful when you're going through menopause or if your child is having health issues or that maybe seem of a more spiritual nature growing up that maybe this reconnection to their original source of nourishment through this tincture can be tincture can be helpful for them um all right encapsulate it freeze it eat it cook it tincture it <laughs> You can also make placenta art. This is something that I didn't think of at all with my own baby, but uh, my friend Sarah and our friend Douglas did it for me, which was very, very sweet. Um, I didn't know about it until 
to say like a month or two postpartum, they're like, oh, by the way, we did this. Here's some prints. So you can, or someone else can make placenta art. You can either just do it with the blood that's already on the placenta. And just, um, I would suggest taking the paper and putting it to the placenta instead of the other way around. Um, on either side that you feel most drawn to. Or you can rinse the placenta off and put on some kind of ink or paint. Um, if you're going to encapsulate it, obviously you'd want to use something that's edible, like a food coloring that you can then wash off to encapsulate the placenta afterwards. Um, and put it on like watercolor paper. You can also arrange the cord in a really cool way. People do like hearts and spirals and make a print of that. You could alternatively just take the cord and arrange it into some shape and allow it to dry like that. And I've seen, this might seem a little crazy to some of you, but I've seen like umbilical cord, what are those things called? Dream catchers. So yeah, those are all fun things to think about and to play with. Another thing that a lot of people do is they bury their placenta. And in my research, this seems to be what most traditional cultures do, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, there's often ceremonies around this. It can be buried in a very specific spot or in a specific vessel. Um, and it marks and sort of cements this child's connection to the earth, which I think is really beautiful. Um, I think, as I mentioned, that often women will plant a tree over it. I know that my placenta was buried under, well, originally it was a red maple tree that I guess didn't make it. So then a crabapple tree was planted in its place. And even as a child, I thought that was so special that I could climb this tree that was just a baby sapling when it was planted on top. And I've always kind of wanted to go back and take cuttings from that tree to plant on my future baby's placentas. But I know that apple tree cuttings are notoriously difficult. Um, so you can create a ritual for this for yourself. I wish that we all had the traditional knowledge passed on to us and that these ceremonies were just held for us or like yeah these spaces were created for us and everyone knew like this is what you do with the placenta these are the rituals these are the whatever the songs or the offerings or the different aspects of this ritual but we don't have that so you can make it up yourself you could sing songs you could play music you could have some words of reflection or gratitude for the placenta or blessings for the baby you could bury it with crystals or herbs or something that you feel significant that you want to again to ground the future of this and this can be a really special thing if you want to do with your family with your partner and with your children or i imagine in the future maybe wanting to do it just with other women to have this be sort of a sacred moment of sisterhood of like again acknowledging well I guess not again but as I mentioned in another episode a different kind of acknowledgement of the closing of this chapter I feel like that more or less sums up placentas for now I would say the main takeaways are invest time into just as much as, well, maybe not just as much, but in the same ways that you prepare yourself for birth, you learn about it, you educate it, you allow your mind to understand it, and then maybe you meditate on it, you envision it, you feel into it in your body. In the same ways that you prepare yourself for birth, 
Prepare yourself for the birth of the placenta. Prepare yourself to be in your power for this part of the process as well and not to let it be sort of like a distracting, annoying sidebar in your birth process because it's all connected. It's all part of this birth. And you can continue this sacred energy through the whole process. Um, And then just think in advance about what you want to do with it. If you want to find someone to hire to encapsulate it for you, if you need some gallon Ziploc bags to freeze it before you can plant it, because I know around here you can't plant a tree most, well, not most of the year, but for a significant portion of the year. And you may not, even if you can plant a tree, you may not be ready to right at that moment. So get ready to freeze it, label it well. I would suggest double bagging it because I did have a placenta in one bag leak into a freezer that was then unplugged and it was gnarly. Luckily, it wasn't unplugged for long, so it wasn't that bad, but still. Um, And then if you freeze your placenta, I am guilty of this. Olin's placenta is still in the freezer a year and a half after he was born, and I know that I think two of Sarah's kids' placentas are still in the freezer. But if you do freeze it, I would encourage you to do better than we have and do whatever it is that you want to do with it, maybe before your kid is two. I mean, do what feels right for you, but there was something in Robin Lim's book which I thought was really interesting where she said she's talked to multiple moms who are like, oh yeah, my toddler has just weird, unexplainable sniffles or like always seems congested or is really susceptible to colds or something. And Robin was like, well, where's their placenta? Is it by any chance in the freezer still? And the moms were like, yeah. And then once they did something with it, they buried it, they, whatever they did, that those symptoms d- resolved for those child, those children. <laughs> so if you think about that placenta being the protector of the child still, if it's in the freezer, it's in this cold state, that energy could impact the little babes. So these are all just things to think about. Um, Oh, and if you're in a hospital, you might have to specifically request your placenta back because often they will just throw it away. And I don't know if this is still true, but I know that in some places it's been against hospital policy or in some birth scenarios, maybe they need to keep the placenta or they can't give it back to you for whatever reason. But I would just encourage you to be very clear and I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for direct in expressing that yes I would like the placenta back after my birth and you might have to repeat it and you might need your partner immediately after birth to say oh by the way please don't throw away that placenta um because that leads down a whole nother rabbit hole of like what happens to these placentas are they by any chance being used for something is someone making money off of them because they do excuse me they do have these stem cells and these really amazing properties so I'm not, I haven't done any research down this, but I think that there's a good chance that if you relinquish your placenta in a hospital, it might be used in funny ways, which again, if if this is the guardian angel of your baby, it's just something to consider. All right, so that was my little spiel on placentas. Um, I'm going to put a link to the ebook thing that I made in the description of this podcast 
Um, and I hope it is a useful resource for you. If you have anything else to add, any cool things that you did with your placenta or cool things that you know about placentas, I'd love to hear about it. And I hope that you enjoy your day and that you own your placenta birth.